and welcome to episode 82 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be starting by comparing books by Australians or about Australia, I'm assuming. We didn't actually discuss that. That's true. Um, or set in Australia versus the same for New Zealand, which was suggested by Lindsay. So thank you, Lindsay. Thank As you, always, Lindsay. we are very grateful for recommendations as we as you know, very frequently struggle to come up with ideas ourselves. Um, and yes. then in the second part, we are going to be comparing two books by Adrian Bell, no relation to um, Virginia Woolf's family, which I initially thought that he might mm-hmm. be, um, which are Corduroy and A Suffolk Harvest. So first of all, Simon, how are you? What are you reading? Thanks, Rachel. I'm good. Um, I'm enjoying a lovely, sunny, quite cold day, as we were talk- talking about it. So yeah. my favourite combination is sunny and cold. Um, although I lost my debit card yesterday, so that's a downer. But you oh, know, no. swings and roundabouts. I blame the leap, leap year. If we hadn't had a leap day, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there's that. Apart from that, having a nice time, I'm currently reading uh, a biography of Rose Macaulay by Jane Emery. Oh, yeah. So I I own two biographies of Rose Macaulay. The other one's by Constance Bellington Smith. Great name. Uh, and I tweeted out asking which of the two was better. And the only person who, who replied was uh, Kate, who said that actually neither of them were the good ones, and I should buy the one by Sarah Lefanu, which I had seen before. I thought, I don't need three biographies of Rose <laughs> Macaulay. <laughs> I've not read any of them, but turns out I did. So, But I'm enjoying this one so far. Um, Kate said that this one I'm reading by Jane Emery is full of psychosexual uh, stuff, <laughs> and the other one by Constance Babbitting Smith was very coy and sort of didn't give things away. And I thought, oh, I'd rather have bizarre psychosexual interpretations of things than, than coyness. So that's what mm-hmm. I went with. But I'm enjoying it so far. It does a little bit of that thing of, um, here's a quote from a novel, therefore the novelist must be this person, which always slightly irritates me. But right. Not too much. Well, yeah. interesting. Um, how about you? What are you reading? Um, I've I just started this morning actually, um, Auntie Mame by ah. Patrick Dennis. So I've, according to I think it's a pseudonym, right? Um, oh, I don't know. Yeah, well, according to the notes in the back of the book, it is. But I was like, are you trying to be funny? Is this a pseudonym? I don't know. Um, I need to look it up. But it's um, it's a book I've had for a long time. Obviously, as as many of you know, I'm reading from my shelves this year, um, and it's the story of a woman who is um hilarious and kind of crazy but in a good way like very eccentric very wealthy always lands on her on her feet gets up to all sorts of capers um through the eyes of her um orphaned nephew who goes to live with her when he's 10 um and it's set in new york and it's yeah it's very it's very 1940s i like it very much yeah i really enjoyed that that's really funny. Like I just I've been reading it just now and I'm just whipping through it and being like hee hee as I read it, so it's nice. I've just finished reading um a very different book actually yesterday, um, Shadows on the Rock by Willa Cather, which is set in seventeenth century Quebec, so it's it's quite a contrast. Oh, yeah. I didn't know she did historical novels. Mm-hmm. Um well yes, no, this is um a bit of an outlier, I think, in her um of and it was, it was very good, actually. Very good. I mean, I don't think Willa Cather can do do any wrong. So I'm pleased that that means I've now read all of my unread Willa Cathers. Ah, and we're doing Willa Cather next time, but not that yes, one. No. Yes. More on that at the end. Yes. 
Um, I don't think I'd want to read that one. I'm sure it's good, but I, it might, I might leave that till I've read some of the ones that aren't set in 17th century Quebec. Yeah, so I think you would enjoy it. Maybe. It takes, it takes a lot for me to like a historical novel. And at the moment I'm it reading... It feel oh, historical. Um, all the other I'm things I'm reading at the moment... Oh, sorry, <laughs> keep talking over you. It doesn't feel Stop historical. Stop interrupting me! <laughs> no, it does I'm glad. Uh, I'm reading Circe yeah. by Madeline Miller, which I know is not historical in the sense that it's based on Greek mythology and thus not reality, but the, oh, I, it's the same thing for me. I, d- I want an author to talk about their own time and their own country. I don't want them to talk about as though Greek myth were real. I'm not interested, but I have to read it for book club. So I'm going to plough on, getting grumpier and grumpier. I feel like everybody's reading, reading that book at the moment, though. Everyone on the tube is reading it. I don't know. I'm like, oh, am I missing out? Oh, really? Well, Apparently I mean, not. you might like it. It's just like, it's, you know, when you start it, well, I don't know if you, you do, but if you, when I'm in a book group and I've got a book that I don't want to read and before I've even opened it, I know I'm not going to like it and I'm just there sulkily <laughs> making my way through the pages. Uh, and I was going to yeah, skip it. Yeah, this is it. why I don't do book groups. Well, generally, it doesn't happen very often, but this one, and normally I would skip them, but this one was suggested by my friend Chris, who... I always skip the books that she recommends because we have got opposite tastes in literature <laughs> and she was getting crosser and crosser. <laughs> so I was like, fine, I'll read one, but I won't like it. <laughs> and there should be cross with me for not liking and it. you're right. Yeah. Well, at least you're trying it this time. Yeah, I might give up. We'll really see. Finished. I'll try. I'll go. I borrowed the book from someone, so at least I didn't have to pay for it. Well, that's one thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you. I appreciate Just give that. up. Just look up the plot online and then you can pretend that you read it. <laughs> Rachel, it's very dishonest. Plus, I'm sure Chris listens oh, avidly you know, to this podcast. <laughs> she doesn't. Sorry, Chris. I mean, I was just trying to be nice. I mean, sometimes, like my mum says, it's okay to tell a lie if it means you're saving someone else's feelings. Oh, I don't care about Chris's feelings. I'll just tell her it was dreadful. <laughs> 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 Is that better? I don't know. <laughs> Oh dear. There's no judgment here. Right, so, let's get on to yes, our first topic. Let's do today. it. Um, I feel like neither of us have got extensive experience in no. the literatures of either of these countries, but as I said to you over text message, <laughs> when has it stopped us from having an opinion? So, yes. <laughs> um, we're go anyway, seeing as you've actually written some stuff down, do you want to start? And then hopefully I'll be um, inspired as you speak. Oh gosh, okay, sure. So, I did, I went through what Google thought were the most famous New Zealand and Australian authors, and I haven't heard of quite a lot of them. But I did manage to come up with a a short list of authors I had read from both countries. But the one that came to my mind before I had to make my list for New Zealand was, of course, Catherine Mansfield, um, who is one of my favourite writers. I'm sure everyone listening knows who she is, but in case you don't, she... Um, short story writer from the 1910s and well, she died in 24, I think. Uh, um, around then she died of tuberculosis very young. Uh, she writes these very beautiful short stories that are about moments in people's lives. The most famous one probably is The Garden Party. That's somebody who's uh, a daughter in a very um, privileged household who's, who's holding a garden party. So it's a lot about her just looking at the men, putting up the tent and or the, the marquee, and preparing everything. But then she's asked to take a basket down to a lady in the village who uh, isn't well, and it's this clash of cultures. She suddenly sees what poverty is like for the first time. And as with all her stories, I think Catherine Mansfield doesn't overplay the hand. It's not this big sensational moment. You just get, 
you almost don't even see what's going on. You just you get some sort of emotional reaction, and that's that's it. She's very subtle in her stories. Uh, a lot of her stories are about New Zealand, about New Zealand life. Um, she did move to England. She lived here uh, for a while, but she um, she. I don't know where she wrote. She wrote some of them back home, but she um, wrote about New Zealand when she wasn't in New Zealand. So there's sort of nostalgia to her stories as well. Um, yeah, she's my sort of number one New Zealand writer. Uh, the others on my list, I have read some. Janet Frame, another short story writer, I think also wrote some memoirs. I don't think she wrote any novels, but um, they. She she was a really interesting person in that she was going. She had um, mental health issues, and she was going to have a frontal lobotomy, but they stopped it when she won some major literary prize. So, yeah, wow. extraordinary life. Um, uh, Naya Marsh, I don't know if she writes about New Zealand very often. I've only read one of her novels, Opening Night. She's a detective no, novelist, of course. She's just a mystery writer. Well, I, say yeah. that. I don't mean that as dismissively, but I don't think she wrote specifically about New Zealand, from what I know. But Yeah, I'd be interested to know if any of her novels were set there. And then the only other New Zealand writer I've read is Kirsty Gunn, who and I only read a book by her about Catherine Mansfield, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> <laughs> so I've exhausted all my New Zealand writers. But I think there's one, at least, that you've read that I haven't, because you read Eleanor Catton, didn't you? Yes, I was just about to say that. Um, yes, so I've read The Luminaries, which I didn't like at all. And interestingly enough, Eleanor Catton, I discovered, wrote the screenplay to Emma, the new film that just came oh, out. Oh, really? I'm seeing that next week. Yeah, well, um, don't hold breath, all I'm going to say. And for me, the screenplay was the biggest problem, which um, I thought was interesting. Oh, see, my, I, my brother loved it, but interesting. Is he a fan of Emma? He loves Emma, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I thought it was very oddly written. Ooh. In okay. terms of when stuff happens, and also Emma's character, who just comes across as being really quite nasty and unpleasant the whole way through, and there's absolutely no reason why Mr Knightley would ever love her. Um, so, yes, very odd. Gosh. And the revelation that they both have feelings for each other happens much earlier than it happens in the book, and it just felt very odd, oddly placed. Oh, it's still a good film. Like I enjoyed watching it. The, the costumes are wonderful. Um, and the cinematography and everything is very good. And the, it's funny. That is very funny. But it's, um, yeah, I just felt that it missed the heart of the book. And it didn't quite get the character of Emma. And I thought it's interesting that I didn't like Eleanor Catton's book. Mm. And I don't like the screenplay. So, um, But, yes, she's, I think, probably the most prominent young writer coming out of New Zealand. And The Luminaries is set in New Zealand and is very much about those early kind of pioneer days of of these sort of clapboard um, harbour towns and you can really get that feel of what it must have been like to, to live there um, when it was still being colonised and the natives being mm. exploited and um, I think there's probably a lot of very interesting New Zealand writers that maybe we just don't hear of or um, I mean I'd be actually really quite interested in reading about um, the Maori culture and yeah. history of that, but um, I've never really come across any books. I mean, obviously, I haven't specifically looked for them. I've never needed to, but um, I think I've got some books, some short story. I've got a short story collection at school of New Zealand stories that I haven't looked okay. too deeply into. Yeah, because I, I try and and buy in a range of 
stuff that's in English, but from not not from England. Like people who yeah. write their native language is English, but they're they're not from England. Um, so there are certainly plenty of writers and stories out there, but it's yeah, I think it's quite difficult to get those stories out. I think because a lot of I know, for example, there is a Penguin Australia and there's a Penguin New Zealand, and they specifically publish stories by Australian and New Zealand writers or books about Australia and New Zealand. But I, I think they kind of market them to, um, you know, a, a local market as opposed to more um, more nationwide, not nationwide, what's the word I'm looking for? Global. In, yeah. Um, haven't been at work for two weeks. Um, a more global audience. I think perhaps there's a perception that people, maybe not as many people are interested or I don't know. I do know that in Australia and New Zealand books are a lot more expensive than they are that's here. That's very true. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if that's because just production costs cost more. They, I imagine they... I don't know how much printing actually happens in the UK versus ha- happens in Australia because I imagine most of our printing is done abroad here anyway. But um, I don't know quite what what the reasons are for that. But I would imagine that means there's a smaller output of novels by local writers. Um, yeah, it might be the case. I mean, yeah. I yeah, I, I remember someone from Australia telling me that books were incredibly expensive. Yeah. Um, who's on your Australia list? I know you don't have a list, but <laughs> well, <laughs> mental list. What, in, in my mind. Um, I, a book that always really stood out for me when I was at university, I was studying a book about feminist writing, which will come as a course on feminist <laughs> writing, which will come as no surprise to yeah. anyone. Um, one of the books we read was called My Place by Sally Morgan, um, and it's a book by a woman of um, Aboriginal descent about... Um, she wrote it in the 80s when uh, Aboriginal kind of awareness of what had happened to the Aboriginal people and acknowledgement of what had happened and, and kind of starting to make amends for that was really starting to um, become a big deal, really. And it was, I think, one of the first books that came out where um, Sally Morgan had had gone and spoken to her grandmother. She'd gone out mm. into... Um, I don't really know what they're called, um, places where Aboriginal people live specifically. Um, I know that in Canada and things they call them reservations, but I'm not sure that's what it is. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I apologise for my ignorance. Um, and she went and recorded the stories of these women, specifically Aboriginal women, hmm. of what it had been like for them um, in the sort of 1950s, 1940s. And it was also her... Um, reflection on what it was like growing up as an Aboriginal um, child and um, I believe she may have been half Aborigine, half uh, white Mm. Um, and her just becoming aware of the fact that the way that she was treated and the lifestyle that she had was actually because of of racism and it's a really, really interesting book about, you know, identity and place and what it means to be from somewhere and to be a native of somewhere, but to be considered by other people not to belong even in your own country. Um, And it was, yeah, it was really powerful because I, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure she is um, half Aborigine because she kind of didn't belong with the Aborigine people, but then she was also made to feel like she wasn't a real Australian with yeah. white Australians either. So, um, and I found that a really powerful book that was all about identity and place. And it was the first book I'd, I'd read really about Australia that made me understand the Australia sort of as a, as a, a different culture and a different set of, of, of history because I suppose growing up 
with loads of people who'd been to Australia, who had Australian family, who'd had family, who'd moved to Australia. I just kind of saw Australia as a kind of extension of England culturally, but actually it's not at all. No. Um, so it was really interesting to, to read that experience. And I've, I've read quite a lot of books um, set in Australia or by Australian authors. Um, I think perhaps Australia is obviously bigger than New Zealand, so there's a wider pool of people to draw from. Um, and I've always been quite interested in Australia because I just find the landscape really interesting and the idea of it being, because New Zealand is quite green, quite lush, but Australia is much more of a sort of a desert um, environment. And I've, it's always intrigued me how people make a life um, in an environment like that that's quite hostile to human existence, essentially. Like my One of my best friends always makes me laugh when she says, Australia is a country designed to kill you. Like, why would you look? Why would you go? <laughs> uh, like, it's too hot. There are poisonous things there all the time. And um, there's a really good book, actually, that I read. Um, it was short. I think, no, it didn't win, but it was shortlisted for the Carnegie Prize a couple of years ago. Um, it's by Geraldine McCorgrian, who's a brilliant um, children's writer. And she wrote a book called uh, The Middle of Nowhere and it's about uh, a girl whose family moves to the outback in Australia and how it basically the isolation what it was like dealing with the weather um, and it basically kills her mother um, living out there with with no kind of mm. stimulation but also I think she gets ill and like the doctor literally can't get there and that the hardships it's set in the 19th century and I just found that really fascinating um and I can't remember I've definitely read another book about colonial people moving to Australia and about the hardships oh uh the secret river um Kate Grenfell yes which again I found fascinating and that whole idea of of being shipped like convicts being shipped out to Australia and that experience of of moving somewhere that's not your home that, and the treatment of the native people um, and dealing with, um, which is, you know, which was awful, but also that sense of being told that you're supposed to make a home here, being told this land belongs to you when it actually doesn't and trying to take a culture and traditions and a lifestyle that belongs to one particular place and one particular climate to a place that's completely different um, and trying to impose that on a place um, and one half, so it's about a married couple and the, the man has, they have to go because he gets, I mean, he's so poor and he, I think he steals something and, um, he, um, gets caught and he has to be, uh, he gets made a convict. And he really feels this intense connection to Australia as a place and his wife never really does. And she always wants to go home. And as time goes on, he wants to stay. And it's that sense of, you know, for some people you can make how do you make a home in a new place and for some people they always want to go back whereas other people feel a real connection to the landscape even though it's completely alien so I really enjoyed that I, unexpectedly I wasn't I had to read it for work and I was just like ugh but I started I was like wow this is actually really interesting um so I find this sort of historical narratives about Australia and New Zealand because Eleanor Catton's book about New Zealand I, I didn't love the writing but I found the history of it really interesting well, it won't come as a surprise that I've not read any historical novels about Australia, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have, I've, I've, read, I've, read, I've read six novels by Australians, so not many, uh, by Australians rather, uh, uh, two of which, sorry, no, five, two of which are, I guess, more classics, uh, not ancient classics, but I've read um, A Harp in the South by Ruth Park, which is all about, um, I think it's slums, or at least if not very, very poor housing in 
maybe Sydney. Can't remember quite where, but this very poor um, family who I think have come over from Ireland. It was a long time ago I read it, but it was uh, really immersive. I really like that. And there was a sequel hmm, with the word orange in the title, but I can't remember the whole title. I'll put it in the <laughs> notes for the episode, which I still have not read. But um, yeah, she's a really good writer. And I read um, Joan Lindsay's... What's Joan Lindsay's book about in Australia? A picnic, the picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes, yeah. Which I've, I guess, I've been to read that for years. So it's from my book group as well. So it's about these school children who go, mm. uh, or school girls who go away on this day out, and then several of them go missing. Uh, and yeah, I won't spoil everything, but um, <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think the ending quite worked. Um, but I thought it was a really interesting, atmospheric book, and. Um, I don't quite remember when it was written, but it's certainly considered a classic of Australian literature. And I think one of those, you know, trying to form an identity of their own rather than just being an expat um, sort of place where people were writing about the places they'd come from or, or, you know, weren't feeling they could be established as their own literary culture. And I think that was one of the novels that announced that there was such a thing as Australian literary culture, etc. But I could be wrong about all of that. <laughs> um, more more modern books. I have read, I read The Slap by Christos Sialk. Tiolkas? I don't know how you say his name, I'm afraid. Well, it was yeah. everywhere about 10 years ago. Which, um, in fact, both both this and the Lindsay were for the book group that I'm reading Cersei for, so they get me to read around a bit. Um, but, in fact, so was the, I think all the Australian books on my list. Uh, do, do, you, do you know The Slap? It, it was um, it's about this. Yes, I remember. And they yeah. made it into a TV series, I think. They did, yeah. So it's an enormous book. It's... Um, a backyard barbecue where someone slaps somebody else's child and it's this sort of moral issue about is it okay to discipline someone else's child etc which I thought potentially quite an interesting topic but the my problem with it was that every single character in the book was truly awful <laughs> and there was, you came out thinking absolutely everyone is wrong <laughs> there's no like oh who's right is it gray area it's like no just everyone here is terrible and everyone, every character from a child to like an eight-year-old man was taking drugs all the time. And I find reading about people taking drugs makes me feel sick. So I just, I didn't really enjoy that. Um, nor did I particularly enjoy Breathe by Tim Winton, which is another one which is about surfing an auto-asphyxiation or, or yeah, um, for eroticism. So that was, that was something. Wow. But Helen Garner, she's my one success on this list, apart from Ruth Park. Um, Helen Garner wrote, um, written a lot but i read oh, the spare room seven, yeah. all about somebody trying an alternative uh, medicine for cancer which is a grueling book to read it's really um it, i think it's a very realistic portrayal of someone close to you having cancer it's not, thankfully not something i've experienced yet but um yeah it was really d- difficult to read but and very but and very emotional but but i think that's uh, credit to her writing talent um, and I love the Chat 10 Looks 3 podcast, and they both basically idolise Helen Garner. Whatever she's mentioned, they just go into <laughs> adulations about how amazing she is. So I should should try more by her. Have you, have you read that or others by her? No. I remember having it years ago, and now I just never read it. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's great, but you you don't want to take it on a flight or something. You need to, <laughs> yeah. need to be emotionally prepared for it, because it, it feels... Um, grueling is the right word i think it's just it's a you really feel like you've gone through the ringer by the time you finished it which is you know i get yeah as i say shows what a great writer she is but but it's not a fun experience no i mean 
I think I'd probably want to give that one a miss. <laughs> um, have you read any Miles Franklin? I have not. Yes, I have. My Brilliant Career. Yes, mm. I have read that. That's Australian as well, isn't it? Yeah, because she is that late nineteenth century. She early twentieth. Yeah, it's my brilliant career. And my brilliant, my brilliant career goes bung. My career goes bung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think they have the the one of the major Australian literary prizes is named after her. Yeah, no, I read as well. And I've read a lot of novels by someone who was born in Australia, Catherine Mansfield's cousin, Elizabeth von Arnim. Oh, yes. But I think we probably can't count her as an Australian author for the purposes of this. No, I mean she was barely there. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll put her, in case anyone's listening and thinking, why have you not mentioned Elizabeth Warren? There you go. And That's if you're thinking, why have you not mentioned any other famous New Zealand or Australian author? F- for my part, it's because I've not read them. <laughs> well, likewise, please yes. do educate us. Yeah, um, I mean that's very scattergun. But do you think we can draw any conclusions about these countries' <laughs> literary output as a whole, perhaps in relation to each other? Um, I mean, I'm not sure that I can. I wouldn't want to attempt to because I don't know enough about it. I think for me, certainly, I enjoy learning about the history of the two countries and um, especially as as both of them have got a very interesting history and a very checkered and troubled history as well. And it's not one that I think gets spoken about as much as it should. Um, So I do... I would be interested in, in learning more about books that, that deal with that. And if anybody does have any suggestions, yeah. I, would, I would love to read them. I mean, obviously, Australia is different uh, to New Zealand because New Zealand, I don't believe, was ever a convict colony. haven't got a clue, but I'm willing to believe you. Yeah, so I, I think there's a that, that's the difference in the... And I was trying to think, um, you know, if you think about... Um, English literature versus Irish literature. There is obviously the fact that, as well as being a smaller country, Ireland has that history of being subjugated by the English, has a, mm. a, a lot of, you know, the troubles of the early 20th century, the troubles of the late 20th century, all these sorts of things. And I don't think there's the same relation between Australia and New Zealand. Um, I, again, don't know much about the history there, but I was thinking New Zealand, obviously, as you say, is smaller, fewer, fewer people, but I don't mm-hmm. think of it as being in that sort of history of antagonism that has politically, no. that's existed between Ireland and, and the UK. Um, as I far as I seem yeah. very proud to be part of the Commonwealth and everything else and that they're very I think certainly from what I've heard from friends who are from New Zealand and people who've lived there is that they're they're very much certainly nowadays in touch with the Maori culture and Maori traditions and wanting to really value and celebrate those mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure how much of, of, of that of um, Aboriginal culture is, is celebrated in Australia well, I know that their current prime minister is perhaps not the most progressive. No. And, um, and as you say um, about Commonwealth, I had a housemate from New Zealand who, before she moved here, didn't really realise that the Commonwealth isn't something that we think about every day in the UK. I mean, in as much as I don't really know who's in the Commonwealth. And in fact, it was a very big deal for people that she knew um, in New Zealand. Which is interesting. Mm. I don't know how much that's influenced writing. We've not talked about the most important thing about Australia, in my mind, which is that Neighbours is there. <laughs> Sorry. I am in a couple of weeks going to an event in London celebrating 35 years of Neighbours. Bless you. <laughs> it's sold out in like an hour and a half. I was really surprised. I thought I'd be on my own. So what's the plan? What, what's the event? 
so it's at the Adelphi Theatre. Mm-hmm. So it's in a theatre rather than something else. And they, they were very cagey at first about who was coming. They just kept saying cast, past and present, which made me think they hadn't booked anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but they have now got Dr. Carl. They've got yes. Jay, Jane. They've got Finn. It's three people at least. So, I, I mean, Dr. Carl will turn up to anything. At my university. Um, of course he did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he literally is constantly on tour in the UK and will come to anything, like a birthday party. He'll just be there. <laughs> Bless him. He loves he loves the fans. Anyway, see you there, everyone. And if you're going to the Namers 35th anniversary celebrations, <laughs> I can't imagine this. Are you going people. by yourself? So yes, but also <laughs> <laughs> sort of no. In in as much as a lot bunch of us from the Facebook groups <laughs> are going to go for dinner beforehand. <laughs> Oh, Simon. You know what? It's really great that you've got this interest. I found my people. You have. 21 years I've been watching Neighbours. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was an avid watcher when younger. But, you know. It's a great time to get back in. I'm just, I just can't be bothered. (laughs) Well, you tried. I I feel like I've missed out on too many years of history now. I'll fill you in on it all. Oh, please don't. (laughs) <laughs> and the worst spin-off novels talking about Australian literature. Oh, I've not really? read I never read them because apparently even I have standards. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when more people were watching around 2000, they, they did have a whole bunch of spin-off. Maybe it was to celebrate the uh, 15th anniversary. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I can't imagine that they were the best. But who knows? Maybe they are future classics of Australian literature. Long after Neighbours has been forgotten, the, the story about Livy and Drew going off on holiday will be, be revered by literary scholars. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Probably not, no. Um, yeah. So, with our complete lack of knowledge and po- very ill-informed views, what, what are you going to pick out of New Zealand and Australia? Um... I think probably Australia, because there's more to choose from that I'm aware of. Um, and while I've read more Australians, I love Catherine Mansfield so much that she's going to tip the balance towards New Zealand for me. Ah, well, there you are. Thank you, Lindsay, for suggesting that. And as so often when people email in, thank you for your completely unjustified belief that we know what we're talking about in many topics. <laughs> Quite often, you'll say, why don't you do this author versus this author? And it's like, well, because we've not read any of them. <laughs> <laughs> We're not as wide, widely read as we like to appear. No. Yeah. But we're, we're only in our late, late, late 20s, Rachel. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> it's how I'm branding 34 now. So Are you 34? Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. yet. No, I'm no, not. No, you're still 33. I'm I've, got, I've got another couple of months, actually, and I'm hanging okay. on to them for their life. <laughs> Uh, great. Well, there you go. One apiece with almost no knowledge. Um, but we do have a question for the middle bit from oh, Linda. Thanks for getting in touch, Linda. Thanks for your nice email, uh, which hopefully we might be able to offer something more on, um, which is what literary magazines or periodicals would we recommend? Oh, OK. Um, well, I very much used to enjoy uh, the London Review of Books, um, but it just got to the point where I mean, it's every week and I never got around to reading it properly. And yeah. then I just had this guilt-inducing pile of, of things to read. And I was like, eh. um, but it's very good if you're interested in lots of things or if you live with people who are interested in lots of things because you sort of pass it around. Um, there is book reviews, obviously, but book reviews from nonfiction, fiction, fiction um, academic books as well. 
um there's a lot there were often you know two or three things that would strike my interest but it is i would say more on the academic side of things um i really always enjoy persephone's biannually oh yeah of course um that's which is more of a periodical really isn't it because they have stories and all sorts of things in there yeah that's always fun to read and um the times literary supplement i've i've always enjoyed in the past but again that is academic so it's not necessarily a light read and you're not going to find if i I wouldn't say like you're going to love every issue because it's, there's such a variety of books that you'll find. Um, you read slightly Fox, don't you? I've never read. Yeah, that, yeah, that was the one I was going to mention. I should admit that I have piles of them that I've not read, but I, the ones I have read, I've enjoyed. Um, and for if you don't know slightly Fox, Linda or anyone else, it's uh, it's quite similar to this podcast in terms of the types of books that they write about. So it's often books that are out of print or childhood favourites or books that aren't that well known and different people who I have never really heard of any of them but I guess they must have some re- claim to being in them I don't know if they're journalists or something but they they will write an essay about that book often quite a personal slant like when they first read it why they love it so much but um yeah many of the authors we've done so um Barbara Cummins, Sylvia Townsend Warner, AML like many of these authors that will, will have appeared in the dozens and dozens of issues they've had of have that so far and it always has a lovely woodcut on the cover and Slightly Fox have a really good podcast as well, actually. I recommend listening to that as well, where they um, interview experts in various uh, various areas, and they'll do a reading from one of the from the, one of the past periodicals. Um, yeah, those are, those are lovely, and I um, I did used to occasionally get one called The Reader, but I haven't done that for a long time. Oh yeah, I used to get that too yeah. when it first came out, but um... yeah. Then I lost track of it, and it was very difficult to pay for it online. I mean, obviously they must have improved it since then, but it was, yeah, it was interesting. It was quite, um, like encouraged me to look at books from genres that I I would never normally pick up. So, yeah, but yes, I think there's limited options nowadays. So obviously, if you look back to the twenties or thirties, there were millions of other things, um, and it was a great way for early for writers to start their careers or you know sketches or short stories or things and now it the ones that do exist always seem to me particularly the slightly fox type rather than you know the, the ones that are mostly book reviews seem to be almost like an homage to those older ones mm. um and i guess the way that they survive is by appealing to that sort of nostalgic f- sense of literature yeah um, I'm sure, well, having said that, I'm sure there are lots of cutting-edge zines and things that I wouldn't know anything about, but the ones that are about the sort of books I'm interested in, or the one is, I would say, slightly foxed, and I think, um, whilst it's still coming out, it's relatively easy also to find lots of the older ones online, and I often come across them in piles in the corner of second-hand bookshops. So I've bought up lots of those, and... Yeah. At some point, when I finally break my legs or something, and I'm in bed for for months, then I can <laughs> make my way through the pile. Yes, you can. <laughs> what a prospect! I know. Or I could just read them and enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never broken a limb. I don't really know how how much it puts you in mind for reading, or if you just I don't know. Well, well there you go, Linda. I hope that, I hope that helps. <laughs> If anyone else knows of any, particularly ones that are likely to appeal to the sort of person who listens to your books, then we'd love to hear about it. Oh, yeah, very much so. Maybe we should start our own magazine, Simon. Oh, my gosh. Handwritten. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did used to write a little magazine for my church youth group. That was good fun. Simon, you're so cute. 
it's going off in the village is like, which is a great segue <laughs> into the Adrian Bell books that we're doing. <laughs> a segue so excellent that it's Rachel's choking. <laughs> uh, would you like to introduce us to a Suffolk Harvest or to Corduroy? Um, I'll do a Suffolk Harvest if you don't mind, as it's freshest in my mind. That's fine. I'll, I'll go first because that's the chronology of them. Yeah. Um, Corduroy was published in 1930, but it's about 1920, where Adrian Bell was about 19 or 20 and was leaving, uh, I guess, university. I can't remember. Um, no, he never went to university. Oh, didn't go to university. Leaving school, striking out into the world. What do I, What can I do? And his dad said, go and work on this farm for a bit. That'll sort you out. So he goes to a farm in Suffolk where it's he's living with the farmer's family and he's obviously of of a class where he is would hang out with the people who own the farm but he's working with the farm laborers and through the course of the book he is learning how to run a farm essentially he's looking back at it from a distance of 10 years so it's um not right at the time but it's he in in 1930 he was only about 30 so it's not an old man looking back back at his work but yeah, it's it's funny stories about the village. It's stories about how he learned to get better at what he was doing. It's never patronising or romanticised. It's, um, I think, a quite uh, not generous, but you know, uh, clear-sighted, but um, but fond look at what living in a in a farming community in nineteen twenty is like. Hmm. Over to you. Yeah, so a Suffolk harvest is quite a lot later. Um, it's I think it was written in the nineteen fifties. And fifty six, yeah. Thank you. I was thinking that. I was like, it's very specific for you to have remembered that, and that can't be right, but it was. <laughs> but you were. Um, yeah. And um, it's it's slightly different to corduroy in that it's it's more like a diary, so um, it's more factual, and it's just a month by month series of not day by day, but you know, every there's probably four or five. Um, days that are recorded in each month and it's there's sort of a seasonal aspect of it to you know the different jobs that are being done the different the way that the year turns and the things that a farmer does while um you know under whichever season and every month has got different jobs but also just random anecdotes about life about neighbors about having children about mm. marriage about um uh, often he'll be doing something and it will remind him of something and then he'll recount something from many years before um a particular character from the neighborhood or there is a the you know his he describes really nicely when his he and his wife um first bought their house and the way that they did it after mm, thing. Mm. there's quite a few funny plumbing disasters and things <laughs> like that so it's very much the sort of a, a day-to-day account of of just normal life really but with the the kind of charming aspect of what's it like living in a rural community in the 1950s um and you get to meet quite a few of the local characters and you get a sense of what it what the the local towns like the local community the local people but also his marriage his family and his attitude to the world he's um he you know will often say something that say things that i found quite profound um just in way of his thinking about what's happening around him and his responses to it so yeah yeah and he wrote an awful lot of books and we've yes. taken ones from very early in his writing and one that taught not actually that near the end but a lot later uh, so it's interesting seeing his sort of early enthusiasm for farming and then a more nostalgic 
Look, although amusingly, when I started reading A Suffolk Harvest, I hadn't really paid attention to the date or worked out how old he was. And he, I sort of assumed he was going to be late 70s, early 80s, based on how he was writing, as though, <laughs> you know, this very old man near the grave. At one point he says all he, he looks at his objects and thinks of them as bequests. And then discovered he was 52 <laughs> when he was writing it. <laughs> Astonishing. I mean, he lived in 1980. I looked this up. So he yeah. had a good few decades left in him afterwards. When, yeah. No, I guess that's he, quite interesting too. Yeah. Very funny. Um, uh, and I, I, I was sat in a room with my parents while I was reading it, who are, I'm sure they won't mind me saying substantially older, well, not substantially, but older than, than 52. Uh, and don't yet feel like they've got one foot in the grave. I don't think so that, yeah, that was, I was very curious. I mean, he's obviously, he obviously retired, or at least he was a writer rather than he was, he was no longer actively farming. Mm. Um, and I guess, I don't know what, if farmers retire earlier from active sort of labor. I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps at the time they did, but, uh, yeah, that, that was quite amusing and unexpected when I mm. discovered he was not old. He was just not young anymore. But it certainly feels very, nos- laden with nostalgia and it's he's not living in the same place he was in Cordway but it's the same county and at one point he goes back to look at the place where he first ran a farm on his own yeah um, and it's gone and it's gone they've taken it down he's showing his uninterested daughter <laughs> where yeah. the, the loos used to be and all that sort of thing I thought that was that sort of thing doesn't change that's what we've all been in the car when our parents take us to show us their childhood home and we don't really care when we're yeah. 13 or something and then later we think maybe we should have been nicer yeah maybe it's just me <laughs> um yeah, uh, as you say, it was, it was quite witty, or quite, not witty, I guess, but, you know, amusing about country life. But I'm intrigued with both of these, what it was like reading it as a city person. Mm, well, I mean, I've always got quite a romantic view of countryside life, um, and quite a romantic view of what it must be like to be a farmer and, you know, all that fresh air and wonderful countryside. Um, but obviously the realities are very different. Um, and I found Corduroy in particular just very interesting in showing the day-to-day difficulties mm. and just, you know, the actual breakdown of, of what you do. Um, and obviously 1920, there were some forms of, of mechanical assistance, but not as much as we would have nowadays. So a lot of it is backbreaking work and you're getting up at the crack of dawn every day. And at the same time, though, what I, I found really lovely about both of the books is that sense of the closeness to the land and being a witness to the changing of the seasons and the reassuring nature of that repetitive pattern that comes every year and knowing right well once October comes this is what we do and when December comes this is what we do and there's a real sense that life for them revolves around the seasons and they make changes to their lifestyle and they have particular routines and the things that they do to fit in with the seasons and I felt like that gave more richness to their life like the I felt like there was more significance to the things they did because they only did certain things at particular times of year and I feel like in a city you kind of lose that sense of oh it's this time of year and and we're going to celebrate it by doing this you know life tends to be pretty much the same all year round um whereas in the countryside out of necessity life becomes more indoors in the winter um and you kind of move more with the lights and um in the summertime you do lots more things outside and I just yeah I just felt like it was a a life that was described as being very connected to nature and I really liked that and I liked also how 
despite the fact that that was his work, he saw so much meaning and significance in it and so thoughtful about nature and the yeah. world and what we can learn from nature and just those little moments of like looking at a flower and then that making him think about something quite deep and philosophical. And I always think quite romantically, oh, if I were a farmer, I'd have time to just sort of stare <laughs> mistily into the distance and have these profound thoughts about the world. Well, I think it's interesting that he doesn't, as I said when I was introducing it, in Corduroy, he's not at all romantic about country life. Mm. He's, he, he recognises the hard labour it is. It's a funny bit where there's, so he asks someone what their brother does, and he says, well, nothing, just a bit of writing, and then discovers that he's on the, he works an office job for the water board, <laughs> which <laughs> to a farmer apparently is just a bit of writing. Um, and by the time you get to a Suffolk harvest, I thought he had begun to romanticise it a bit and thought, now that he's no longer doing it, and now he's looking back to the past as well, he recognises still that it was hard work and that, you know, making a living was quite tricky and all these things to take into account. But I think that distance is, he's put on his rose-tinted glasses a little bit. Um, yeah, I yeah. felt as well in A Suffolk Harvest, he, I got that sense that he felt like the world was changing quite rapidly. I mean, that, that incident of him going back to the first farm that he'd had and it's been replaced by an airfield. Mm-hmm. And that sense that the world is that he knew is slipping away, and I think that also made him sound like he's he was older than he was. But I think actually that that kind of rapid, rapidly changing world in the fifties, it must have begun to feel like he was living in a world that he didn't recognise anymore in a way, and that he was a bit obsolete maybe. And he doesn't talk much about the war, but obviously no. that was the big thing that had come in between the two books. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I did find it slightly. Um, it didn't quite work as well for me because if you've got a book that's a, that is quite about nostalgia and about the world back then, then in the 1950s it has that now and then comparison that works in the reader's mind now for them. For, for us, the 1950s, you know, 65, 70 years ago, 1920s, 100 years ago, there's not, they're not the 1950s is further from now than the 1920s was for the 1950s. It doesn't, we don't have that same feeling of the 1950s as being the future and the 1920s mm. being the past that is the sort of mantle of the whole book, I guess. Whereas because he's writing about 1920 and 1930, it still has that sort of immediacy. He's not writing nostalgically there. And weirdly, I found that meant that Cordray hadn't dated in the same way that the Suffolk Harvest was had because he's not looking at it with dewy-eyed remembrances oh. um i also thought, you know, i i grew up in villages i live in a village now i was interested to see how village life had changed in a hundred years and the thing that has really stayed the same in my eyes and that you see really well in cordray is a sense of community like everyone knows their neighbors everyone um, cares about their neighbors there's a real like a real mix of people who are young and old um different classes i guess to an extent although um i guess in my village now there's not really <laughs> there's no laborers particularly <laughs> there is a working farm but um yeah i guess classes come a bit closer but i think at the time the classes were more on top of each other uh, interacting with each other in the countryside than they would have been in a in a city they'd have been in the same space in a city but perhaps not interacting in the same way mm. um the thing that really has changed is that i got the sense in corduroy that everyone in the village was involved in the farming community even if they didn't work the farm they knew what was going on it affected their everyday life um the harvest was a big thing for the whole village uh 
now, whilst there's the, at least one working farm in my village, possibly two, I've yet to work out <laughs> if they are the same farm. Um, it doesn't affect my life at all, except in harvest, it takes longer to get on the roads because you're always stuck behind a tractor. Yeah. <laughs> I always have to leave for work a bit earlier when it's harvest time. But, uh, but yeah, I, um, commute out of the village every day. I was working in a city. I'm now working in a town, but I'm not working in the village. I'm, it's a place that I spend my evenings. And there's a definite divide now in the village. There's some people who work here or are retired. And so they are here all the time. There's people like me who aren't here during the day, but try really hard to get involved in village activities because it's really important to me to be part of that community in, in the same way that we see in Adrian Bell's books. And there's some people who just it's their home, it could be anywhere, and they commute to somewhere else, and then they come back and see their family and don't get involved in anything. And that didn't seem in either of these books like it was an option. You couldn't live in a village and not be part of the village. Yeah. Um, yeah, and talking, I, yeah, I liked that a lot. And I also liked, even in a Suffolk Harvest in the 1950s, the fact that everybody went to the same local town to do their shopping, and everybody mm-hmm. went on the same day, and they all knew each other, and they all stopped to have a chat in the shop. Um, and people's lives revolved around the the town and the village where they grew up, and there mm. wasn't that sense of people commuting anywhere or going anywhere. Um, it felt like much more of a static community where people looked out for each other, and I think for me that's the kind of romantic element of the book, having grown up in London and still living in London. I've never really experienced. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs and there was a sense of being, I did feel like I was part of a community because obviously I knew people ill and, you know, I went to school, I went to church, I had a job locally. So, I mean, even now I I went on Monday to visit a friend who still lives there and we saw about a million people that we knew on our way to the high street. Um, and there is that sense of community, but it's not the same. Whereas here, mm. it's very much... Um, that sense that the countryside was a place where these traditions were continuing. And I think it's really interesting that Adrian Bell wrote so many books and they were apparently very popular. And I think his books certainly fed into that sense of of romanticism that must have been quite a post-war feeling of wanting to go back to ye olde England. And I think he feeds quite nicely into that that mindset because I thought it's interesting as well that he didn't mention the war at all and I thought well actually maybe people just didn't want to think about it they wanted to read something that kind of in a way pretended it didn't even happen and I think that is a definite difference between these two books it does seem more like oldie worldie England he's looking back to in the second one whereas Mm. I don't remember whether or not he mentions the first world war in Corduroy because obviously a lot of these labourers actually no well farming was a kept profession I guess so maybe they wouldn't have gone to war but um, obviously would have affected people in the village. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, and yeah, he, I know he wrote novels and things as well, so I've been intrigued to see how what DNA they have, if they have any similarities, or it's completely different. But, but yeah, it's interesting he writes, as far as I can tell, I mean, the, the Cordray has got two sequels that I haven't read yes. yet. Um, in fact, talking about Slightly Foxed, they've all been republished by Slightly Foxed. My copy of Cordray is a Slightly Foxed edition. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that he talk, he writes again and again about the same sort of world, obviously shifting over time, and there was an appetite for that. Um, and the only person I can think to compare him to in terms of topic is Beverly Nichols with his very, very funny books about living in a village, but those are very different because they're quite snarky in a way I love, but they're not the community minded. He's very much the Londoner who's moved to a village, who's 
um, yeah. looking at the, the the strange people or, you know, some like-minded people, but he is not sympathetic with all echelons there. He's not, um, he's not one of them, really. He's an outsider commenting on it like a travel writer sometimes, whereas Adrian Bell, even though in Cordray, he is an outsider, really, just so quickly gets immersed and welcomed into it. And he's not patronising them, he's just trying to understand them. At the same time, we don't get their perspective. He's just imagining, well... I mean, they might have hated him. He didn't say that. <laughs> but uh, you get the sense that they've welcomed him and that they think he's got his funny ways, but they're willing to embrace him as part of the community now that he's there, which I just thought was yeah. lovely and um, hopefully true. Who knows? Well, yeah. And I just think um, books like this, I just find them charming and heartwarming. And I just found also found a lot of what he said to be in both books, really, to just be very true. I think he had a real kind of way of putting things. He had a, a really nice kind of spirit about him and heart. Yeah, he definitely seems like a nice guy. Yeah. And did you know that his daughter was the uh, translator of Tintin? I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, and Thea Bell, is yeah. that his daughter? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. She died recently, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, she did, yeah. Hmm. Um... I should sort of say they, these books can be quite funny. I think um, I really liked the description of feeding pigs in Corduroy, that um, <laughs> they're sort of almost constantly squealing that their brothers and sisters are being fed before them. But um, once they've got their food, the other side started squealing. It sounded a bit like painting the fourth bridge. But um, I particularly enjoyed in um, A Suffolk Harvest, in one of those things that wasn't intentionally funny because he doesn't know how times will change, but when he writes about the menace of cars on the road and people cutting each other up and people speeding. Thinking in the 1950s, <laughs> probably not that bad <laughs> compared to what it's like now. But he had a very funny bit about people, you know, going, you know, driving and not letting others go past them and, and the anger this caused locally. Well, try right, driving around villages in the in 2020, Adrian. Mm. Well, I mean, you take your life in your hands in some of these places. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas, yes, I think he talks about them going at maximum speed of 40 miles an hour. So, <laughs> yes. If only. If only. Um, have you read anything else by him? No, I haven't. But I would I would very much like to read more by him. And I'm particularly interested to see what his novels are like. Yeah, I've got one called The Balcony that I've not read. And I, I think the only other books I've got by him are a few, are the other two in the in the trilogy that I should, should go on to before I forget what happens in Cordroy. Yeah, one day I'll get to them all. They're quite hard to get hold of, though. Um, a lot of his books are out of print. In fact, mm. most of his books are out of print. Um, I come across them sometimes in second-hand bookshops, so I'll just keep an eye out. Yeah, I think A Suffolk Harvest is not the easiest to find, but if you do, it's got a lovely cover. It does have a lovely cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, and which... Bell, are you going to ring? <laughs> oh, um, that's very clever. Thank you so much. Um, I think probably, just because I found it very charming and philosophical, I'm going to go for a Suffolk Harvest. Uh, whereas, as perhaps I hinted earlier, I preferred the immediacy of Cordroy as opposed to the sort of 1950s nostalgia that didn't... Um, date quite as well for me, but I did really enjoy them both. We are in complete disagreement today, Rachel. Well, doesn't happen that often. No, it but, doesn't. Uh, well, we still like each other, though. It's okay. We do. Yeah. <laughs> 
Great, and as mentioned earlier, we will be doing Willa Cather for our, our next episode. We will be doing A Lost Lady and Lucy Gayhart, I think yes, that's right. that's right, yeah. Uh, as we continue to read our way through Rachel's bookshelves. <laughs> Although, in fact, these ended up not being ones you needed to read, did they? But, no, but never mind. No, never mind. We're doing our best. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that um, D and E and F will all provide us with great things as well. It's going to be an exciting journey for both of us. <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye, bye. Don't forget, you can see a list of all the books and authors that we've talked about at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books, where you'll find bonus mini episodes with featuring just me, not Rachel, but I'm there. Uh, I'm really grateful to everyone who does. Thank you so much, particularly to Elizabeth, Louise, Randy, Liana, Heather, and Michelle. And yeah, I think that's it. See you next time.